let me tell you what, Burt Reynolds, uh, with that cigar, uh, that, that weird, uh, swimming vest that, thing. That wetsuit, sleeveless wetsuit. <laughs> it's powerful. I'll tell you what, man, that's a, that's a handsome man. It's a big that, mood. That's a look. That's, mm-hmm. need to bring that back, Dalton. You can't just go around saying shit like, I don't have insurance. <laughs> Not if you're friends with an insurance salesman. Just like run around like, I don't, I don't, I don't put a phone case on my phone. That's gotta that's, be an inside I only joke, have though. unprotected sex. Like, what are you, come on. <laughs> don't be proud that you are you're living You're cursing your life. yourself. Yeah, yeah. Dangerously. Yeah. Well, he's gonna have an extensive hospital bill now. I'm <laughs> saying. He's gonna wish he had insurance yeah, from yeah. Bobby. Yeah. Bernie. Bobby needs to give him some insurance. Lewis can Bernie afford 1974. canoes and fish archery gear. Get insurance, dude. Fish archery. I don't know what you call it. Bow fishing. Bow fishing. Bow fishing gear. That was a delightful uh, device. Yeah, I've seen people bow fish. It's pretty it's cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. I've, I've never seen them fish for trout with with the bow. I've only seen them fish for like alligator gar. You gotta do what you gotta do when you're surviving on the river. I guess. Man, you city boys wouldn't uh, understand. Yeah. Guys, we watched Deliverance. Yeah, we, we did. did. I've so, never seen this movie. I had not either. I thought it was going to be like like a funny action comedy thing, and it was not that. Wow. Yeah, you got a very different movie, bud. <laughs> hey, you know why? Because pop culture told me. Well, and we are going to talk about that. Dustin, That's this right, feels like a good time to hand it to you. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table. We discuss the films that you will sometimes surprisingly never discuss in a film studies course, uh, Deliverance being an example of just that. So we're going to be talking about that movie. But maybe you should? Maybe you Question mark? should. Um, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And uh, we're here giving you all that good trashy goodness of talking Deliverance. Now, if you've never tuned into the show before, I don't know why I say this with a movie from the mid-70s, but I will nonetheless. Um, we are an analysis show, not a review show, and that does mean that we're going to spoil this movie. Um, the line, squeal like a pig, does take place. They do play banjos competitively. Um, very, very well. It's a banjo versus guitar. Yeah. Burt Reynolds is only in about half of the movie. Well, he's in the other half. He's just knocked out. Yeah, he's, he's barely in it. And then yeah. Severus Snape <laughs> mostly, kills most, John Voight. Mostly visible through insert shots. <laughs> I don't think that happens. Oh, that's not the wrong spoiler. Yeah, wrong spoiler. Um, but Ned uh, Beatty was dead the whole time. <laughs> God, I bet. Uh, we'll get there. Um, so uh, anyway, we're going to try to avoid spoilers in the first couple parts of the show. Synopsis spoiler free, uh, generally spoiler free in our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. More spoilers when we do expanding the syllabus and the most spoilers when we get down to business and that is analysis. And you'll have little musical cues to uh, indicate when that happens. So um, that's all I have to say about that. Let's go ahead and hear the synopsis from Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. I will. Uh, performing domestically is the fifth highest grossing film of 1972 and earning 46 million on a 2 million budget. Deliverance's reputation precedes it. When four city men set out to canoe the Kahulawahasi River in Georgia, it's a fake river, so I don't care. Uh, the weekend takes a turn. Lewis, Ed, Drew, and Bobby find their way to the isolated river and encounter some ominous mountain men who run a gas station and mechanic shop. Lewis hires the mechanics to take the party's cars into town at the end of the river. The mountain men warn the city boys of the dangers of the river, but, of course, they don't listen. Taking two canoes, the men set off down the river. On the second day, the canoes get separated, and Ed and Bobby find themselves on a riverbank. They encounter two more mountain men who have a gun. The two groups get into an altercation. The mountain men overpower Ed and Bobby. They tie Ed to a tree and force Bobby to strip down. One of the men rapes Bobby, forcing Ed to watch. When they turn their attention to Ed, Lewis shows up and kills the man holding the gun. Drew runs the other off, and they argue about what to do. The men decide to bury the body and continue downriver, embarrassed by the rape. 
The men continue downstream and in the midst of riding rapids, they hear gunfire. As they go over a rapid, one canoe breaks against the rocks and Drew and Lewis fall into the water. Drew never resurfaces and Lewis busts his leg up, not to be heard from again. Ed and Bobby have to take point and decide they need to take out the gunman who they suspect is the other rapist who ran off. As they decide to lay a trap, nature continues to work against them, and the question of whether this party will get off the lake is raised again and again. Deliverance. This is the weekend they didn't play golf. Wowzers, wowzers. What a tagline. Cue Alan Jackson way down yonder on the Chattahooch. On the Chattahoochee River. It got hotter than a hoochie-coochie. Are you guys doing a... Is this a reference to something I should know? This is a country, Alan Jackson's uh, Chattahoochee? Music. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, okay. buddy. Sorry, boys. You don't know the song? Nah, I don't. Oh, buddy. Buddy. Yeah. He well, snuck coochie into a country song that played on national broadcast radio. Whoa. Damn, Alan. That's, it's a, uh, that's spicy. It's a thing. Um, okay, country music notwithstanding. Um, bluegrass, um, definitely outstanding uh, through the yes. course of this film. Uh, we're going to be... Score. The banjo is ominous music was a... Uh, phenomenal touch. Yeah, I mean, it, it changed uh, pop, popular culture for better and worse. Man, I love me some slick banjo playing. I'll tell you what, Jerry Garcia, Grateful Dead, yeah. good banjo playing, guys. Just saying. Hey. Working Man's Dead, check it out. Um, but let's do this. Uh, let's talk about whether or not we like this movie and why or why not. I go to you first, Dalton. Um, a thumbs up, thumbs down review of Deliverance. Well, I want to read uh, a little something real quick from an article that uh, Arthur found uh, that was, uh, we're pretty sure... Uh, Isabel Machado's uh, doctoral thesis at Old Miss, but that's a really great article we found called The Sun Belt South, the 1970s Masculinity Crisis and the Emergence of the Redneck Nightmare Genre. Uh, essentially, big, big, long piece about deliverance and its its larger cultural impact. Really, really great read. Uh, Is it we... about being too far from a Starbucks? Is that the redneck nightmare? Uh, no, no, no. That's the white girl nightmare. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I think it might be the red. Look, we're going to talk about rednecks a lot. Just hold on. <laughs> give me a second. Uh, but to remind uh, the reader of kind of the context of uh, the masculine culture at the time. Um, uh, Isabel Machado pulled this really, really, really great bit of copy uh, from an advertisement for the then-recently revamped True Magazine. Uh, so here's a little bit of that. One word describes the new True Magazine. Macho. The honest-to-God American man deserves a magazine sans naked cuties, Dr. Spock philosophies, foppish, gutless unisex pap, and platform shoes. Uh, the ad also advocates... Uh, unisex pap? Yep. Okay. Uh, later on, they advocate for American males staying away from the sterile couches of pedantic psychiatrists and the frivolous skirts of livers. So, yeah, it's the 70s. <laughs> uh, the 70s thought they were the first uh, and last uh, generation to go through, oh, I don't know what it's like to be a white guy anymore. Ugh. And uh, somehow we're still figuring that one out. I'm still wrestling with the question of whether or not psychologists have non-sterile couches. Um, you'd have to ask Sigmund about that. So that's just kind of the world this movie comes out into. And I, I think it's really interesting to look at this movie of, of 1972, but then look about, you know, some of the films that are famously about masculinity from more recent years. When we get Fight Club from 99 or um, The Art of Self-Defense from this year, still fundamentally asking a lot of the same questions. It's just that I, I think popular culture has turned its its gaze at those questions in a much more satirical manner. But in 1972, people are taking this idea seriously, right? We haven't had 40 years of uh, robust civil rights uh, fighting in, uh, in the United States yet. 
So in the 1970s, just you know, a couple of decades into it, for a whole different, uh, a whole lot of different marginalized groups, this is you know, I guess for whatever reason, seems like a serious point of of cultural discourse. And again, we still have people to this day saying this is a a point of cultural discourse. I know this feels like we're getting uh, already into analysis, but I think it's important to talk about the context of this movie because damn, is this a movie from 1972? It is kind of boring, guys. Uh, and that's that's the thing that's so frustrating about it. It is. Really thematically fascinating. Um, I, I, the way this film deals with violence, I think, is really interesting. Just the 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 way violence is edited in this film is very specific, and it's almost always in pretty lengthy shots, which I think is super important. Um, and the, the even-handedness with which it assigns guilt and blame uh, and violence throughout the movie, I, I think, is... Uh, a, a real credit to the screenplay, which was uh, adapted by the uh, the same author who did the novel. I uh, don't have his name written down. It sounds like he was He's kind of a nut. He's the cop at the end. He, he is the cop at the end. He seems like Lewis on steroids, from what I've understood about yeah, him. Yeah, I read some stories about uh, him on set that were He apparently wild. Uh, broke the director's nose and knocked out four of his teeth after a, uh, he found out the he had script changed the script a little bit. Uh, oh, I so the rumor that. has it. I thought the director beat him up. No. no. Other way around. Gotcha. That That's funny. That makes sense why I hadn't heard that story. And I guess the director is like half the size of this guy here. So oh. according to the the so rumor. Bully. Mill. What a jerk. Uh, but again, th- this is the film that we're here to watch. And it, it is very much obsessed with this kind of a ma- American naturalism that is uh, pining for a time that never existed. And I think that's a, a big feature to do with that American naturalism that kind of comes out of... Uh, we're, we'll get that get to that in uh, analysis. The point is, this movie's boring, and it's full of interesting themes about uh, suburban sprawl and uh, abusing natural resources and changing people's homes to bring comfort for other people. And it's full of these really big ideas. But after about the first half hour, it's just kind of a slog. Uh, and it's not because it's unpleasant. As Arthur mentioned, this is a film that has uh, got a, a sexual assault right in the middle of the movie. But it's not even that. It's just that from that point, there's no dramatic tension left in the film, really. It's like, what are they going to deliver or die? Like, oh, they already did a murder. What, what, where are we going with this? And it just kind of takes a long time for the movie to to reveal where it's going. And mm-hmm. by the time it gets there, I think it's just kind of lost me as a viewer. Um, again, good performances. Uh, I, I think Burt Reynolds is at his birdiest here. Uh, this is a big breakout role for him, uh, and uh, you can see why it kind of helped him become a a, a cultural uh, icon. He's great. Uh, Voight's good in it. I mean, he is kind of the lead more than Reynolds, and he's fine. I I don't really care for Voight in most things, but he's pretty good here. Um, and it's beautifully shot. Like it's it's got a lot of really beautiful landscape photography, um, and. Uh, is a big deal for uh, the the history of film production in Georgia, which I'm sure we'll get to. But yeah, I'm just kind of eh, on this movie, despite all the things that I find really interesting about it. And I'm excited to talk about. All right. Well, there you go. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, Arthur? Do you like Deliverance? I am fascinated in many ways, as Dalton is, by this film as artifact and what this film means at a particular time in, in U.S. cinema. I think that it has this fascinating discourse, and I think there's a lot of fascinating themes, as Dalton alluded to. You know, whether they're capitalized on or not is hit or miss. But I, I, I think after reading some stuff about it and, and learning more about the production of it, there's a lot of really interesting discourse about this film to be had and, and kind of where it sits in in time. 
but as a film, it is, it's a mess. I mean, I, uh, we talked about it off air and, you know, I said like that first, really from the, the, you know, the start to that point where the assault happens, uh, and, and they have to bury the body. I, I thought it was pretty high energy, very good. After that point, uh, when they had to hit the rapids and then Bert's out for the next 45 minutes, hour, I don't know, uh, it, it just slows down. Uh, I mean, it's like they just hit that riverbank and they just could not recover. Uh, we get a good chunk of time of John Voigt just hanging from a cliff, hoping oh, he doesn't fall so and long. die. Um, so, you know, it's really a mixed bag as far as that element. Cinematography is beautiful. I mean, the, the, the way that's all put together, the editing, the opening of, you know, these rivers and kind of merging that against or contrasting that against the bulldozing and the industrialization of the dam and things of that nature and kind of speaking to those themes. I think that editing stuff is on point. I, I, I think the cinematography is gorgeous, has a very new Hollywood type feel to the cinema photography, kind of a naturalist element, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the dude who did, uh, Close Encounters, uh, Vilmos, big name. Oh, there you go. Yeah, hard, hard name to say, but, uh, yeah, really, really great, uh, career. Did, uh, The Deer Hunter, another boring ass 70s movie. That there looks you go. Great. That looks great. He's got a great eye. He's got I, a great gotta eye. gotta give him that. And so I think from those, you know, the score, I think, you know, not only the dueling banjos bit at the beginning, but also just as that banjo, uh, becomes more ominous as a score throughout, uh, particularly when Voight's hanging on the cliff. There's a really good ramp up in the music, and I think those elements are really well executed. Uh, but just from a narrative standpoint, I just don't think it executes as well uh, as you could hope. And so it's it's a mixed bag because I am really fascinated in, as we talked about it off air, getting ideas. I was really excited about the conversation around this film, but just as a film, uh, no, yeah. I am. I'm out. I, I love the actors. I think Reynolds is great. I like Voight. This kind of resurrects his career um, in 72. And so, uh, you know, I think he does a good job there. And then Ned Beatty's really good. Uh, the guy that plays Drew. I don't know his name. He's he's pretty good yeah, as well. Yeah, I've never seen him in anything. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't recognize that name. I recognize Ned Beatty. I've seen him in other stuff. Yeah, I know, I know Beatty. Beatty's got a lot to do here. Um, all that on, you know, it's all shot on location. They're scouting. I mean, these are real, you know, people's homes that they're looking into and visiting in, in Georgia. Um and I think that aesthetic works very well. It's kind of disheartening as, in, in a way as well. But, um, yeah, as, as a narrative film, I, I think it just struggles and I, I can't do it. I, I wouldn't do it again. Dustin, uh, you, you like it better than we do? What's up? No, it's boring. Dustin's been on cruise control from the time he got here before yeah, we started he's, recording. He's not excited about no, this. I'm really not. I, just, I wanted to keep the dramatic tension up for the listener, but yeah, no, we know how you feel about this. You like it less than we do, I think. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fine. I mean, you know, there's a weird thought I kept having halfway through the movie that it was like the dark prequel to the Goonies. <laughs> and, um, you know, and you could make a reading of the Goonies and make it work. Um, but anyway, um, that being said, I'm, John Voight is very good. Burt Reynolds is very good. Ned Betty's very good. Whoever plays Drew's good, like you said. Um, and I'm all for that. Um, I do think the uh, sound is um, really kind of impressive considering um, the location shooting that they're doing. But they're doing a, uh, and I think it's a choice. Um, you know, you talk about those moments where the banjo comes in that are really good, but there's so many moments without any of that banjo yeah. sound and not enough ambient sound. And it's just, it's too. From being in nature. It, yeah, it's too yeah. quiet and it becomes. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's a choice. I, I'm sure it's on purpose because I know that that was, you know, something they were totally capable of putting it together. But um, for me, it just it makes it dull, just dreadfully dull. And so, you know, for a movie tackling such serious subjects, um, you kind of expect it to be a bit more flash and sizzle. And there's just not enough to that uh, for me. So, I mean, as far as that goes, you know, I 
Will I watch Deliverance again? No. Um, but that being said, um, is it a board film? Is it something where I'm interested in talking to you guys about here in just the next few minutes? Yes, I am. But yeah, I'm not a big fan and uh, don't care for it um, at all, really. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally um, con, and uh, that's just the way it's going to have to be. So uh, we're going to move right on, though, and uh, expand your old syllabus and uh, see if we can make a uh, module teaching this movie in a classroom setting a little bit more interesting. I go to you first, Arthur. How would you expand that syllabus? Well, uh, for the first time dalton and i are going to be co-teaching a course on nature is ruthless we will be um and so i'm going to start off uh by assigning a short story it's one i really dig i think it's just a fascinating work it's jack london's to build a fire which man if you want to talk about just how uh you know dangerous and deadly mother nature is uh to build a fire is a a masterwork in that that regard of building this unease and this dread of the inevitable that man is no match for mother nature and, and left to man's own devices doesn't stand a chance because the dog is out here smarter than him because he knows he has that instinct that man lacks. And I think it's a fascinating look at that. I think a lot of the, you know, that's the same conversation these guys are having at the beginning of this movie when we're wanting to get gung ho, go down the river and everybody's like, I don't think you want to do that buddies um, because they know the river is a dangerous place. If you haven't been there and then they prove them right. Um, and so I would start with To Build a Fire. From there, I'm just going to move into a number of films that kind of speak to that element. I'm going to go with 127 Hours with Danny Boyle. Uh, James Franco, he gets trapped. You all know the story based on a true story. But again, it kind of speaks to that as well. Um, I would also go with um, Everest uh, from a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, Everest is one of those Mother Nature's great majesties and wonders, and men want to conquer that. And it is dangerous. It is yeah. not easy. It is not uh, always, you know, very rarely successful. That mountain is actively trying to kill you. Yeah, and, and I like, you know, Everest is a pretty yeah. flawed. Damn it, movie. they're gonna put a Starbucks on there if it kills some. Well, it's gonna <laughs> kill a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, it's, and they're still gonna make frappuccinos. Man, learning about the uh, the commerce of uh, people uh, who want to climb Everest is wild, interesting, and uh, very sad for what it's done to the uh, the economy of Nepal. Apparently, I don't know enough about it, but. I know it's wild. And, and then from from Everest, I'm going to move into uh, 100 or into the wild, uh, which we spoke about a long time ago. I put it on the platinum shelf a Ooh, long time ago. First time I believe we did those awards. Yes, it was. And uh, you know that is a movie that is just moving and gut wrenching and, and speaks to that human desire to go out and do more. And there's kind of this existential element to it that speaks, I think, harkens back to what Jack London was doing. Um, but uh, again, nature. It's hard to conquer, and I think all those films kind of speak to that. And then that's where Dalton will come in to uh, move on and move the class forward. Uh, I will, because here's what we got to talk about. The one thing that we have in common here uh, is all these idiots uh, have money. Everybody we've talked about, uh, Jack London all the way down, this obsession and, uh, you know, sorry you had to cut your arm off, but that really sucks. But, I mean, again, we're, we're looking at primarily white people. Uh, who uh, keep putting themselves in the dangers of nature because they're bored. Uh, and I think there is something interesting about that. And it seems uh, to be this through line throughout uh, American writing about nature that uh, is kind of uh, obsessed with getting back to wilderness instead of living the life that's right there in front of you. So I'm also going to talk about Into the Wild, but I'm going to be having a, uh, some sections from the book read. Uh, the book is, uh, you know, written by a journalist who's tracking the path of Chris McCandless, who the book and the film are about, who 
died in the woods. It's Krakauer, right, for that? Uh, yes, I think Krakauer wrote it. But um, Sean Penn seems like really to be in love with Chris McCandless's mission. And I think Krakauer's just got a much more even-tempered, this kid was a dipshit and got himself killed. Like, he, he respects where the kid's coming from. This You know, Chris McCandless grew up uh, of means and had uh, lots of educational opportunities open to him and decided to go rough it in the woods. And and I think the the book has a much more clear-eyed uh, appreciation for there were better ways for this kid to throw off his privilege than going and dying in the woods. Real, real Batman stuff. Uh, but from there, I think we got to talk about some other stories about uh, this this through line of wilderness and nature, um, and and how uh, we we have this this thing in American culture that uh, sends people out to chase the wilderness, and often so they didn't you know can avoid other things. Uh, so first up, we're going to talk about The Gray, another movie we've talked about on the show, the Liam Neeson film uh, directed by Joe Carnahan. Uh, fun movie about the wilderness, fun movie about how it'll kill you, but again, an, another movie about people using the wilderness as an escape from their uh, emotional problems. Uh, speaking of that, we got to talk about The Descent. Oh, what a good movie. Uh, nice. What a great movie. Uh, and again, really is kind of what if deliverance, but ladies, and instead of, you know, uh, hillbilly stereotypes, what if mutants that live underground because that's how they evolved. Uh, really cool movie. Um, and again, I, I think does a, a fun job of showing how the wilderness can be scary and, and a much, uh, more viscerally kind of traditionally horror, uh, gore slasher lens, but also how you can dive into character psychologies. And I, I think that's something kind of deeply missing from deliverance. We get sort of broad characterizations of all the leads, uh, and, and not to say that the descent is a gripping character drama, but I think we, that film offers a little bit more internal life on its characters. It at the very least establishes the relationships those characters have to one another yeah. to great effect. I and mean, it becomes a central conflict of the film. Yeah. I don't know who Buddy is. Yeah. Or I Bobby. I don't know what, I mean, Lu- yeah. He just Lewis kinda... and Ed, like Lewis does, it, they, they only kind of know each other. Like everybody knows. Uh, John Voight's character knows Lewis, and the other guys don't. Like it's yeah. it's weird. It's it's not clear how these guys know each other. Yeah. Uh, and again, the descent. Oh, they just they they do this together. They get. Look, it's such an easy explain. Anyway, so again, uh, another film that's kind of dabbling with with similar things. Uh, not quite as deep or profound, honestly. I think there's uh, uh, less societal stuff to glean from the descent, but a lot much uh, much much more to glean in terms of the gender dynamics that are inherent in these sorts of stories and analyzing that with women. And also just, again, a a better sense of how do you establish characters in a film that is essentially a thrill ride? How, how do you still do that? Uh, finally, uh, we're going to close out with a a book that I liked as quite a bit as a child that uh, I think is fun. It's called hatchet. Uh, there you go. Yeah. By by the survivalist guy. I can't think of the author's name. Gary Paulson. Thank you. Gary Paulson is a big outdoorsman, naturalist survival guy and says, what, what, what's a, what about a kid who gets crashed in the wilderness? Well, the kid's still dealing with his parents being separated. See, all these dumb nature stories, all these survival stories are just about people not dealing with their problems and roughing it anyway. Uh, because I think that is the central through line of all of uh, these stories that Arthur and I have kind of talked about. It's about people who want to be alone. Nature isn't hard anymore because we got good at working together, and it's only hard when we refuse to work together. So uh, there you go. That's a class. 
All right. Very, very good. I would take that class. I'm very, very excited about that kind of stuff. Um, I'm going to go a different tack with my syllabus, and uh, I'm just picking films. And I'm just doing this idea of the exploitation, especially, you know, the two uh, rapists that we encounter um, and their sort of freakish um, hillbilly inbred looks. Yeah, they're and, supposed to be genuinely cast from the area. Well, and some I'm, of those, uh, one of those teeth looks like a dental appliance to me. I've been to West Virginia. Um, I, I mean, again, I don't, I don't doubt it, but, but it, yeah, yeah, we'll get, we'll talk about it. I mean, it's a thing. And so that, that sort of form of exploitation and the ways in which it becomes horrible. And I guess for the, you know, ur text of that is in 1932, Todd Browning's Freaks, you know, one of us, one of us, Google gobble, one of us. And, uh, that whole story, uh, about what's going on with the circus carnival, uh, set of, again, the circus freaks, um, people with, uh, certain abnormalities and deformities and being exploited for the sake of making some money for, uh, the, uh, Runner of the, uh, I guess it's a carnival, not a circus. I'm vamping so you can clear your throat, but also I just really wanted to do that. Yeah, it's it, so that that's a thing. Um, then I want to move forward, so we would move from that movie into Deliverance, and then from there, I think we might move into a little Rob Zombie movie. And I went back and forth, but I think I want to go with The Devil's Rejects over House of a Thousand Corpses, even though they're sort of part of a what's I guess going to be a trilogy now, apparently of movies. And I like The Devil's Rejects quite a lot. I mean, it was. It was Talked about it on the show. It's a good movie. Unpleasant film. It's an unpleasant Very film. Very unpleasant. But it's also pretty, you know, interesting um, for various reasons. And so that sort of butterfly gang, whatever um, name you want to give them. Firefly. Uh, Firefly? But yeah, it's Firefly family. Whatever. I like the butterfly family a little more. Yeah. Well, I like we, we both said flamely and just went with it. I'm really proud of us. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta roll with the punches sometimes. That's right, baby. Well, at least you got the bug right. Um, <laughs> no, nonetheless, um, that particular family, and again, they're just inbred, sort of rednecky, sort of you know, it feels very much shades. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is another film that came to mind oh, for that, for sure. you know, as an option and does a similar kind of thing. And so you might, alongside Deliverance, at that same time, use Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that does sort of lead us forward to uh, what we're seeing in the devil's rejects as well when you go full-on horror with this uh stuff although i would say deliverance is a full-on horror film as well yes but i guess that's probably something we had to save for business time so let's well, i'm really surprised you uh left out the opportunity to include the eliza dushku classic wrong turn you know about remember guys remember wrong turn i remember somebody gets their head chopped in half with an axe that's right mistaken. arthur you are correct it's a gross movie uh very Deliverance as a slasher movie. All right. Well, that's a good idea, too. I yep. don't know that movie. Uh, well, we're going to talk about it and all kinds of uh, I guess the hills have eyes, right? Oh, yeah. That's I mean, they're more zombies, right? I mean, that sort they... of goes with your descent pick. Yeah, you know, that's a little true. Bit. So there's that's... like a mutant zombie kind of thing. Uh, that seems I've to never be, seen it. So... That seems to be using radiation as an excuse to get away from making fun of people who are inbred. Gotcha. Yeah, so it, it does make a step of uh, removal from that. But nonetheless, it is exploitative in its own sense as well. So... Yeah, I'm excited. Let's do it. Let's get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. Well, I think your class is a great place for us to start, Dustin. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, how this movie, because it, it's, uh, you didn't read the article. You didn't do the homework. Arthur and I did, though. Um, but I, I, that uh, article we mentioned at the top of the show, I, I think, uh, goes a lot into the portrayal of uh, rural people in this film. And I, I think your class about exploitation and those tropes is a, is a great place for us to start kind of expanding the analysis of this movie, right? Cause this is all about city folk and country folk. Yeah. Well, and even before watching this, you know, I kind of, I mean, I knew the whole redneck thing, right. And so early in the show, Dalton loved to give readings about the other, 
and so even before I was like, oh man, this is going to be another movie. Um, and, and I mean, the, the article that we read even opens, uh, with a quote from Robin Wood discussing horror films and talking about the other. And so I, I just couldn't help but think of Dalton and the other, which really feeds right into what, you know, Dustin's talking about here. Exactly. I mean, all horror movies and action movies and really any film that wants other human beings to be the antagonist has to find a way to make them other. But the problem with the popular cinema uh, and when it makes a lot of money, uh, selling people a narrative of an other that seems to be set in the real world has consequences. Uh, well, and, and, you know, she speaks about um, almost this Orientalism effect that it has uh, and how it makes these people kind of an attraction to go see. And I mean, the the, the area there, their tourism economy just exploded. Yeah, I read about that in the wake and, of this movie. Yeah. And, and so it's uh, you know, setting it in, in the real world and shooting on location with real people really does have a different effect on, on how this is perceived. Yeah, there, there, there's something very interesting to me. Again, the when, when she brought up this idea that we, we were creating a, a mythical other uh, within white culture of other white, it's like this really, it's this fascinating thing of, of white people trying to find people that are worse than them if they if they accept this belief that, well, you know, we're obviously better than everybody else, but what about other white people? Like, it's, it's this weird trying to find an excuse to say, well, not all white people are inherently better. There's those other ones. Uh, and it's just this, it's gross. And, uh, yeah, I think your class is uh, a theoretical, really great way to tease that conversation out, Dustin. Well, and I think it really draws it out in the movie in terms of class. And I think that's one thing it's really careful to do is to keep, um, the actors that are our, our quote unquote protagonists. Um, we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, later. Um, keeps them in a place where they are also very much coded Southern. But they are a bit more urbane. They're a bit more sophisticated because they're suburban. Right? They're from Atlanta. They're from the bustling city. You know, and so you know, but they they still kind of remain. I mean, I mean, you think about a movie like this. You couldn't set this movie in you know, say New York or you know, California. Not that people don't camp and you know, canoe down rivers in those in those places as well. Yes. But there's yeah, they got the Catskills. But there's they do. But there's like a, there's a certain culture in the South in which even though you find yourself in that sort of suburban locale that you really want to sort of be kind of a country kid in some sense, and that the difference that fundamentally d divides you from the hillbilly mountain people is is class. It's just they they they're dirt poor and they're they're doing this stuff to survive and they got their whiskey still somewhere off in the woods uh, just to make a little extra money off their mash and uh, that it's it's just. It becomes a way in which we class divide um, what's going on within, you know, sort of white culture at that time. And that these people, because of their lack of access, they become more and more inbred. They become more isolated. I mean, inbreeding itself is a factor, I think, that, you know, sort of applies to some of the just the look um, that we're dealing with in these kind of films. Well, and they, uh, Borman, uh, as director, but also the the screenwriter and novelist, they, they've talked about, you know, actual um uh, there's a word for it other than inbred, but like isolated communities uh, in, in the South that are kind of uh, inspired this town. They don't go into it directly. Um, but again, the, this article, Arthur and I both read that there, there is some talk of, you know, uh, Native and white families that ended up kind of by themselves because they got ostracized by both Native and white society, you know, in the late 1800s and then just stayed where they were. Um, so there, there is, you know, a very interesting component of how... Uh, 
colonization uh, of the uh, the contiguous United States left a lot of people behind in its wake, including some of the people who were supposed to allegedly benefit from the colonization. So it's it's interesting in that regard, I think. Well, that some folks just never left that holler. Yeah, you know, is what it comes down to. And there's just you know the, that sort of eastern mountainous region. Well, it, it ties back into that that very suburban idea that seems, I think, to be a very inherently just capital A American underlined italicized idea of taming nature, right? Mm-hmm. And then you leave a little piece to go play in. But mostly we're just trying to break into submission. Right. Which I think is kind of inherent to um, the the suburbanite characters, but also to this uh, antagonism between the two groups, right? Not just the inherent classism, but the different uses of the land. Right. Yeah, like, argue from the power company, the question yeah. being asked when they first arrive yeah. at the gas station, yeah. you know, when they meet the watcher, um, which is, again, another horror movie trope that kind of works there, who is a very good tap dancer, it turns out. Yeah, man. And that's some really jig, baby. A slosh, soft shoe. That, that whole sequence is good. That's a great sequence. That old man could cut a rug. But as, as uh, you know, I'm glad we circle back to this sequence because, you know, we're talking about the other and Dustin said this is all tied to class. It's as soon as they meet these guys... Um, our our group of uh, rugged heroes is just talking shit on these people that they're trying to get to help them. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. Ned Beatty's character is Ed. Is that his name? Bobby. Bobby. Every time Bobby, like, gets into a conflict with somebody, like, immediately, like, walks away and lets one of the other group members deal with it. We which got is, a live one. Is a really... Bobby is the worst. Bobby's yes. terrible. He's the worst kind of person. this movie is so mean to him. Like, yeah. this movie punishes him. We'll get to the assault here in a little bit, but, I mean, it punishes him... So aggressively and for his his uh, fear of confrontation, and then I think in contrast you have Drew, who I think is a little more empathetic to this way of life. You know, he is he is having a ball playing guitar. I mean, he just wants to stay there for hours playing guitar with this kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a little more humanity to him and a little more sensitivity, and I appreciate that about having that contrast within this group. And I wonder if that sensitivity isn't why he meets the sticky end that he meets as well. I mean, I think Well, there's, there's something... I'm curious to see what you guys think, because I was reading about this. I don't know if it was in the article or something else I read, but there's this reading of the film, uh, and it is director and actor kind of signed off on it that it could be possible that um, that Drew character kills himself. Mm. Hmm. That, that they, so, they dove off the end of the canoe yeah. to kill himself. And he doesn't have the jacket. Like, he intentionally... Yeah. I mean, you know, Burt Reynolds suggests that he was shot, but it's never really confirmed. I, I got the impression that maybe he'd killed himself as okay. well. Oh, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, the film does deliberately allude to... Well, there's nobody sure he got shot. Mm-hmm. Like they, it, it, by the end of the film, we know we don't. We know for a fact that we're not sure he got shot. Yeah. And I think it lines up with that character who is so sensitive. Like he's not going to be able to live with this if he goes back into civilization. It's. I mean, he's going to have probably a worse encounter with PTSD that we kind of get with Voight's character right. Ed. Mm. And, you know, I, I think there is that question of can he live with himself? And again, I think the film might be punishing this guy for being the worst at othering to come back to our original thread here. Um, one of the things that you def- definitely find, I lived in Arkansas for uh, quite a period of my life as well, and uh, have floated a great many river on fishing and camping trips um, in canoes. It's a lot of fun, and it's a thing that people still do, and is enjoyable. But there's something about, again, these sort of urban-centered people who do this sort of stuff for recreation and for fun that um, they're very, very proud of being from Arkansas. Which is, you know, uh, it sounds like a punchline to a joke to start with, right? Um, and Arkansas is a fine place. And there's nothing wrong with Arkansas, but it's got a certain reputation, right? Yes. And uh, that it's fascinating. Everybody to from me. the middle of the country has a gigantic chip on their shoulder. We, t- we just do. 
and, it's hard and, not to. And they love being from where they're from, but they also know that there are other there are people in those places that have um, sort of won them that reputation. Yeah. And they do everything they can to distantiate themselves from them. And that's where the othering takes place. And so I think what this film is doing is sort of wrestling with this idea that these are out. We are all of the same, you know, sort of region. We all belong to the same state. We're all basically the same people, but we're not like them. We are so not like them. And and the the, the great effort that is made to make sure that yeah yeah yeah. I mean sure I live out in Arkansas, but we you know we've got indoor plumbing. And knowing full well today to this day, 2019 in Arkansas, there are communities where a lot of the homes do not have indoor plumbing and uh, you know i heard stories being told in the 1970s of people who i was you know friends with you know in the 20 aughts and 20 teens talking about when electricity finally came to their particular communities before they made their way to the big city in little rock look i get it i didn't get a mcdonald's in my hometown until after i graduated high school so i i, I get that uh, everybody looked at me at that moment, and I'm sorry, guys. City boy, yeah. City boy. Dalton's the real Lewis of the group. Yeah. I, well, that's the thing, right? Now we got to talk about Lewis. Jesus, uh, guys, buying a bunch. Lewis of, is Burt Reynolds. Just you know what? Yeah, Burt Reynolds' character. You know what? As soon as Burt Reynolds walks on screen, I immediately thought of, uh, that moment in Zero Dark Thirty where Jessica Chastain makes fun of uh, Chris Pratt and the other uh, uh, Navy SEALs. She's like, yeah, I want to do this with the drone, but you know, you guys with your fucking gear and Velcro and dip. And that was like, oh yeah, Burt Reynolds is covered in gear and you know, he's got his stogie. Got that cigar. And it's just, it's this very performative, I promise just because I'm from the city doesn't mean I don't know how to fight. Like, and I, I get that. I totally get it as the city boy at this table. Like, I understand that. But man, seeing that character on screen is so frustrating because Burt Reynolds is so cool. He's so cool. And Lewis, as a character, is such a schmuck. I know that guy. Everybody knows some variation of that guy who thinks he is super prepared for the shit to hit the fan because he spent a bunch of money on a camelback and, I don't know, some, some night vision goggles or whatever. I don't know. He has spent $8,000 yeah, on hunting gear. He's got, he's got a life straw and some waterproof matches and a hatchet. He's the guy that pays to go rock. hunting. Yeah, exactly. Well, dude, let's not get me started on people who pay to go hunting. I can't even with that shit. <laughs> 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 it is all as well it's as we've said it is this performative i promise i'm still tough even though i have money because the city at the end of the day or the suburbs at the end of the day is code for money sure people of means live in different places depending on what region you're from but the people who go backpacking or either people who come from there and are going back or people who want to visit because they've got the money to go visit, and they've got the money to fund these sorts of trips. Right. If you're from there, you probably know what you're doing, so you don't need a ton of gear. And you probably know somebody who, you know, has gear at their house because they live there. And that's it's this very aggressive class dichotomy, as we talked about, but it's also this very, very 70s, but I think there's some through lines to today, this very performative type of tough guy uh, machismo that says I, I cannot be mastered by nature just because I work in an office because Lewis is very tight lipped on what he does for money I don't does he ever mention it I don't actually know that the movie ever tells us because he makes, yeah, he makes fun of John Voight for selling insurance but I don't know that we get a handle on what Burt Reynolds does no I never I get know in the novel I was reading on Wikipedia about the okay. novel which seems like a pretty fairly honest uh, adaptation as far as events yeah especially uh, with uh, the adaptation by yeah. the author but i think drew is like a graphic designer or what something and one of them like works for a soda company like a, a high up at a soda company you know so they all have gotcha. this kind of 
pretty white collar, yeah, 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 middle yeah. management kind of yeah. gigs. Yeah, again, we, we and that's just kind of plays too. And again, Burt Reynolds does it super well. I mean, the performance is great. I think I don't know. I'm not going to speak for Reynolds. <laughs> Obviously, you know, he's not with us, and I don't know him. Uh, or didn't know him, but uh, it seems like he knows that Lewis is in over his head, right? Like he I, seems. I think so, except for and there's okay. one there's one moment in there where um, it, I think it absolutely makes you know uh, just a jackass of him, mm-hmm. but he doesn't know that that's what the scene is doing. Is when they first camp, and he's like, "Oh, did you guys hear that?" And then like he sneaks off and like comes up back around them Batman style. And it's like, what was yeah. it? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And I think he was like, I, you know, I hear the hillbillies coming is the way Burt was playing it. But I yeah. think the movie is indicating to us there wasn't nothing going on at all. He was just trying to be like the, the Indian tracker. He's crocodile dundeeing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what he's doing. Well, and that's, we, we were talking about this a little bit off mic. That is one quibble I have with the movie is, especially by the point in the film when uh, the stakes have been clarified. You know, we've got a dead body. One of our friends just got raped. This is the point in the film where it kind of becomes clear that Drew is the only person here because uh, uh, Bobby, uh, the the Ned Beatty character, he's man, he's he's had a day. He doesn't have yeah. an opinion on what they do whatsoever. Uh, but Drew uh, is the only one that's like, well, are you guys out of your minds? We can't just bury this body. Like we did the right thing. We got to go find help. And Reynolds makes a good point that you know they probably know the cops, but you really think burying the body is the right move in this situation, bud? There is an interesting sort of turnabout moment in that um, perform, well, in, I guess in the screenwriting, where Reynolds makes the argument that if we go to the police and this uh, this sort of wrongful death, manslaughter, possible murder, whatever charge that might come out of something like this, even though it's pretty clearly self defense, um, whatever ends up happening with it, if there is a trial that the jury is going to end up being seated by kinfolk of the deceased, right? Um, and this idea that no matter what kind of court we face is going to be strung up against us because we're, we're the outsiders and they're the insiders. And I, I do feel like there's a sort of, you know, kangaroo court, sort of racial injustice kind of thing. I, I think about, you know, a, a black man accused of raping a white woman in the American South and a white jury. And just because they're all white people, you know, there's, there's an assumption of, you know, you're going to get found guilty whether you have any guilt or not. And I think there's a way in which they're going, they're finding themselves on the other end of what would be a racially tinged sort of situation where it's more of a, a regional. They're the minority. Or, or yeah. I guess, look, we wa- I mean, watching another movie where two people run away from a justified homicide recently, Thelma and Louise, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that was, we praise that film for how effectively it establishes the idea that nobody's going to believe them. Uh, and also, I mean, it's pretty. There's, it's a lot more ethically gray in it, that film. They kind of by do design. the bad thing, yeah. But again, that film establishes so quickly and so effectively why the law is not going to be any help. And in this film, the only rationale we get is Burt Reynolds going, "What law?" Thinking he's so far out, but literally, <laughs> literally five minutes after they get off the river, they're rescued. There's the law. They're back. Yeah. And that's I, one of my favorite things about this film is this insistence that they're so far out. Not really, man. Like people are still around, dude. Yeah, like, they're like just be- six hours from a town. Just because not you that don't live here doesn't mean there's not people here. Yeah. Well, you know where they put towns by the rivers. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all you've got to do is walk uphill till you hit a road, and then follow the road till you hit a town or a farmhouse, and you're there. And that circles us back to, to where we kind of got off track. But yeah, Bert does is totally out of his depth, and I I, I get I. I tend to agree with you that there are points where he he doesn't always know how it's supposed to be played. 
but I feel like John Voight is always playing it as a hero, and it never stops bothering me. Yeah, uh, until the end of the movie, and I think he plays it pretty well. And I again, I don't, I just, I can't tell if it's a, a feature of the performance or a feature of the film, but I am bothered by it. I'm bothered by that he thinks he's still in the right. I feel like John Voight's character to me resonated more as the sort of country boy come to the city. It just seems like he's he's got that sort of innate knowledge, and uh, but at the same time, he's just not quite as gregarious and sanguine um, as a character like Burt Reynolds's character. Well, and Lewis is established as you know intimidating everybody. I mean, that's kind of his shtick is he's he's trying to alpha everybody in this group, and uh, yeah. it's it's an important choice, I think. And this. Ed can't even kill a deer. Yeah. Oh, poor Ed. Yeah. Poor Ed. Yeah. Um. But it's it's this real uh, Die Hard thing, right? It's it's real uh, Reginald Vell Johnson and Die Hard um, uh, moment when he he draws down on the potential uh, uh, accomplice Carl. to the rapist, yeah. um, and I love that it doesn't tell us one way or the other. I love that it, in fact, kind of implies that it's definitely the wrong guy. That's one of my favorite yeah. choices. Um, the dental appliance did not indicate it was the right guy. They well, I the think other it's guy a different looked... actor. I, th- I really yeah, do. I think there's still a lot of ambiguity. I think it's a different. It looked like a different oh, guy to me. I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah, because they look look him dead in the face, look at his teeth, and they are. Still it's like, pretty heavily implied know. that it's the sheriff's brother-in-law or whatever. Yeah, that went missing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I definitely think it's the sheriff's brother-in-law, but, but I yeah, thought I don't he, know that. I thought he was the guy. I never believed it was the guy because of the performance and how they react to. I, I think it's him. Sure, and I like he the, was a hillbilly with a gun. I think good the, enough. The vagueness of that is super important, yeah. right? And again, the, we're getting to the stuff about the movie that does work for me, like the the length of the sequence of burying the first body is great. Like it's exactly as long as it needs to be because it's it, it does not shy away from the fact that when you drop a body in the world, it's there. Now there's a body, like and it it makes them work to hide the crime. And I think it's a really important touch because it kind of helps put you in their headspace. So this really disoriented, dazed, how long have we been here spot. Can I be a country kid for a second? Yeah, hit it, man. How yes. do you go on a camping trip without a spade? I don't know, man. How do yeah, you even go? Yeah, when they started using the, the knife as a shovel, it's like, where's your, where's your shovel? You, you, know, shovel you gotta bury your poop. I mean, come on. These are mean city boys are gonna be living tur- leaving turds all over the riverbank. Or in the river. Yeah, they're probably going to shit in the river. These are real men. They poop nails. Yeah. <laughs> we lost the thread a little Sorry, bit. Sorry. No, uh, it's all right. I mean, these are all valid questions about Lewis and uh, everybody's bullshit. Right. I think Lewis most of all, but they all kind of represent the same sort of uh, machismo we've been talking mm-hmm. about. Absolutely. Now, another thing we need to talk about, though, regarding this film is its production. And uh, there's a lot of great stories and anecdotes. It, it, you know, it doesn't have insurance. Um, Bruce, um, Bruce, Burt Reynolds, Bruce Reynolds, I don't know yeah. who that would be, Burt Reynolds, um, famously broke his tailbone um, doing uh, the canoe stunt yes. uh, because they ran the canoe um, with a dummy in it over the uh, rapids, and it looked like uh, a, a dummy of Burt Reynolds in a canoe. And he does this, breaks his tailbone, and the director comes to him afterward and says, well, we looked at the dailies, and it looks like a dummy of you uh, <laughs> going over a rapids in a canoe. <laughs> Looked just the same. And this again, is why stunt people have jobs, so they can tell you when it's not worth it to no do it. No insurance. And insurance is important. Oh, my God. 
Well, it's another level of the exploitation that we were talking about earlier. You know, the way in which wage, um, you know, slavery works is that you have to do what you have to do for the job in order to keep the job because of a threat of insecurity. But that's not limited to just sort of like survival subsistence kind of work. That labor itself, you find yourself putting yourself in very, very dangerous situations. John Voigt climbs that cliff. Like he really, really climbs that stinking cliff. Burt Reynolds really goes over the rapids in a canoe and breaks his tailbone. Um, there are things that happen in the course of this film um, that they're doing. They're taking these risks because of the possible payoff of greater fame and greater renown um, as they're developing their own star personas. And it's the same. I mean, it, it's it's maybe a greater level of subsistence, obviously, but it's still the same fundamental um you know function at work it's interesting though right because at the same time it harkens back to this uh, again machismo uh, if we want to circle back to that but this real like director as tough guy stuff that we get from like the john ford era right of no i'm really or even the coppola uh type stuff like no we're going to vietnam my movie is vietnam i gotta go do it on location or nobody cares. which he does in the philippines yeah no nobody gives a shit (laughs) nobody cares john you don't have to go to a river. You don't. It helps. That's what that's what your second unit's for, man. Man, I'll tell you what, there are lots it's of... It's just... It's, it's, it's overly dangerous. And yeah, we, we applaud Tom Cruise for doing it, right? Because he builds an entire film production around Please Try to Kill Me. But when you're just making a movie unsafe from the start... It, I don't know. It reads different to me. But, you know, it raises the question, what compels a Tom Cruise to do that kind of thing? It is sort of the maintenance and the increase of that particular kind of persona. Oh, I mean, well, yeah, that's a whole different. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of. We're ego. not going to try to analyze no, people, Tom Cruise yeah, right Amy now. Amy Nicholson wrote a whole book about this. But, there's a, but that's a fundamental pressure that Tom Cruise maybe is like the uber example of. He is a good example of it. You're absolutely but, right. But as you scale it back, you find that, you know, actors and actresses are um, more willing to uh, do na- nude scenes that they would not have otherwise done. They're more and more willing to say yes to dangerous scenes they would not have said. That's fair. You know, they're, oh. they're more and more willing to go ahead and accept certain risks under the pressure of, well, you don't want to get a reputation for being, quote unquote, hard to work with on set yeah, yeah. and you want to keep working in this industry or you want to sort of again bolster whatever um reputation that you've gotten there's a real pressure there yeah. just like the same pressure when the boss comes in and says i like for you to come in on sunday and work these extra hours without overtime because well if you don't you know we may end up having to make some cutbacks and you might be the first one and we yeah. let go that's a good point and especially in an industry that's all about reputation right? right yeah i mean you think of leo and the revenant who's does this very physical, unnecessary performance just to get the Oscar. And, uh, you know, I think with Burt Reynolds, as Dalton mentioned, this was kind of a first big boom in his. So he's hungry. He's young. Yeah. He's just trying to make it. He's, uh, he is a legit. I mean, he is a tough guy. Like, he does a bunch yeah. of dumb, tough guy stuff, like, for fun. So he is physically, like, a, in Able. shape, dude. Yeah. yeah. I, I can see him thinking it's not a big deal. And, you know, Voight's over here trying to salvage a career Keeping and make up sure. with Burt yeah. Reynolds. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, what's driving those guys and then trying to do something to uh, make some more money and make build that reputation, like you said. I, 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 go ahead. No. I, I have a question. This will require phones, gentlemen. Um, so um, I'm asking questions about John Wayne when he died, when the shooters came out. And so I'll go ahead and 
ask you to do that as I begin to frame the question is in terms of this film's discussion of masculinity, I do believe that John Wayne is sort of the uber example again, coming out of the sixties and fifties of what masculinity looks like in the United States. I know he's dead very, very close to the time period when this film comes out. I think the shootest, his last film, 76 is when the shootest comes out. He died in 79. Okay. So he's not about a decade. So he's not right, right at the start of the decade in which he passes. I wonder if he's waning at that point and if that's not part Part of it because I mean part of the of his performances nonetheless even though he is not yet in the ground you know because there's that line about it in Argo and I wondered if it was that close to 77 or not when he said that um, was that you know as our major sort of masculine hero is going away that there was a, a sort of a cultural anxiety about how do we continue to be masculine without John I'm Wayne. just gonna roll my eyes at this but, I can't I can't not I mean it's, it's ridiculous it's absurd it's such a fucking but, uh, but I think it's real Though. I think you're right, and I, I guess what I'm saying is it's absurd to me that culture would ever accept the premise, right? Like, I, I fundamentally don't understand the idea. And again, I mean, there's plenty of things today that we say, is this the new blah, blah, And I'm, I'm always rolling my eyes. So this is not like a, a, you know, specific to the 70s type thing, right? I mean, there's a dumb think piece from uh, any news outlet you want to choose from. I'm not trying to, like, make this a... Uh, a sided thing. I don't, mm-hmm. Who cares? Pick anybody. Literally anybody. Um, they'll have a hot take about is is culture losing its mind for soap shoes again? Are they coming back? Like whatever it is, everybody's trying to figure out. Like you, you don't remember soap shoes? What's a soap? Oh, shoe? buddy, they were. You could grind on them like a skateboard, but they were your shoes. That's. We'll talk about it later. It's not important. What? Nineties kids remember this. You know what's up? It's a real thing. We'll talk about it later. Wheelies. But, they're like wheelies, but they're wheelies. different. Guys, it's not important. Oh, okay, Moving we will on. circle back to this at a later date. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but again, like I, I remember you've come talked about this before. Actually, I think you've sent me an article about this. But yeah, like I know that this was a real thing, and I'm sure plenty of people were like, "Oh, that's a really good point." It just seems like an absurd premise to accept to me because even in the late set, I mean, in '76, the shootest, like even if people are, like, "Oh, the shootest did bad," you know, who, nobody, all. Action movies are about machismo. Like even mm-hmm. a lot of the action movies starring women are still about machismo somehow. Like it's it is such an asinine idea to suggest to me that people aren't going to enjoy guns and violence in cinema just because John Wayne of all people's dead. He wasn't even a good action star. He's a big fat boy who could barely ride a horse by the end of his career. No offense to the late John Wayne, but look, he wasn't a tough guy. That's all I'm saying. He didn't walk like a tough guy. I'm just... Eh. You ought to watch the clips. I'm so annoyed. I'm so annoyed at the premise. I can't even. Ugh, it's so stupid. I, I totally derailed you. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I'm just I'm just wondering about the thought, though, of the sort of, again, those, the, the collapse of that Western version of, you know, the, uh, the action hero and yeah. how this film begins to find a way to fill that void in a more contemporary kind of setting. And that's something Peckinpah was really trying to hold on to in the 70s, right? When he makes Straw Dogs, obviously, which is very Western-oriented, this revenge thing, you know, what you got to be a man and defend your property and your woman. Uh, he does that, and then he does the Wild Bunches, like the last of the, the Westerns of that time before we kind of got the revisionist uh, approach. I mean, it's kind of the, the starter of revisionist West, yeah. Westerns in some people's eyes. Yeah, yeah but uh, he's, you know, he was kind of the last real man's man director, you know, I think in, in regards to the, pro- the properties he was putting out. And I think, you know, he was trying to hold on to some of those elements you were talking about. But, you know, I don't know if deliverance lands somewhere between that and new Hollywood or, you know, what mm-hmm. we're looking at there. Cause it doesn't really have that counterculture feel like we'd see with like easy rider or something of, of that ilk. 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, okay, well, uh, what are the other big topics that you guys sort of picked out of that article or well, other things? I think the other thing we really kind of wanted to hit on is, you know, this movie is pretty much a horror movie yes. by, I think, generic definition. Yeah. And the thing that we've kind of come to, you know, I, I mentioned in the opening here is I've always kind of assumed this was more of a buddy action comedy rather than a full-on horror movie. And I didn't know about the the rape in advance. I knew about the banjos. I knew ding, ding, ding. I, I knew what that insinuated, that there were rednecks and they were playing banjo. I knew the purdy mouth line. But it's become this joke within popular culture. I mean, this movie brought uh, filmmaking to Georgia. It made a lot of money in 1972. And even in 73, it was still performing well. The um, highest grossing movie of uh, 1975, right behind uh, behind the Green Door, one of the most uh, popular uh, pornos ever made. Huh? We're financially successful, anyway. Yeah, weird year for film. But uh, 72. Yeah, I know, right? So it's it's interesting that through time that this has kind of become a punchline of a film, and it doesn't have the kind of finessed academia behind it like some other movies of that era do. And I as as influential as it is. And as impactful it is, has been in, in setting generic tropes and in setting just productions. I mean, you know, production in Georgia and, and all that element to it, it. It's surprising that it has become kind of so parodied and satired to become just like this running joke of a movie that's. And that's the movie about the rednecks. Ding ding. Yeah, it poses an interesting question. What happens when a film is like a huge hit at the box office, becomes like a big part of the cultural zeitgeist? frankly, isn't good enough to continue to capture the public imagination uh, long enough to end up on lists and, you know, whatnot. Because I'm, I'm sure you could find somebody that really go to bat for this as one of the best films in 1972. I don't I don't doubt that. I'm, I'm sure there are people out here um, who, who are, you know, people as smart or smarter than us who probably like Deliverance more than we do and really go to bat for it. And again, I like it. I'm not, I just, it's so weird to me that this is a movie people still talk about. But you're right, Arthur, it's not, Something people talk about uh, in terms of like being part of the canon, right? It's it's not something uh, I'm very sure it's not on the AFI top 100. It is on AFI's top 100, top uh, 100 thrills sublist that they do. You know? do you, is it yeah, specifically back? for thrilling? Know. Which yeah, thriller is one of those sort of more amorphous kind of genre sure. categories? Because you know, that. like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre from '74 is going to get a lot more press doing a similar kind of yeah, you, you know story. Yeah, when something goes, when you can say something is a horror film, it doesn't matter. The, the generic difference between a thrill and a horror is so subjective. It really just matters, like, can you mark, what are you going to market it as? I mean, that's really what it comes down to if we're talking about uh, getting butts and seats, right? Are we going to call it a thriller or are we going to call it a horror movie? Um, but you're right. I mean, okay, so it's on the AFI top thrills. That makes sense. I mean, that. But it's still, it's not like that's, the canon list. Yeah, I mean, those sub lists are really for the zeitgeist type yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I I think that's super interesting though Arthur that you didn't because I knew that the the rape was a central component of this film and I've always found it really weird that that was such a joke like around this movie like the squeal like a pig like I was like didn't that come from a rape scene that's kind of weird yeah but I didn't know like just how long and it's I, I'm not gonna say graphic because it's not an, a particularly graphic assault on film but it's long mm-hmm. I mean it is unpleasant and Ned Beatty is just falling in the woods in his undos. While this dude chases him, it's super upsetting. Like I'm, I'm not going to undersell how upsetting it is because it absolutely is, and it is absolutely bizarre to me. I mean, it's not bizarre. Uh, this is a popular film, right? About machismo and macho ness, and of course, people are going to miss the point 
and say, I don't want to talk about that super uncomfortable thing that happened, so let's make a joke about it. That's literally what happens in the movie. They're uncomfortable about talking about it, so they don't go to the police. Because I think that is a big subtext of the scene that we kind of didn't get to uh, when we were arguing about the... uh, uh, Not really arguing. Mostly I was shouting at the movie. (laughs) But when we were debating the merits of them not going to the police, I think the subtext of that scene seems to be they probably don't want to talk about the fact that a rape happened. Yeah. Uh, And again, they they don't say that, but I think uh, Drew certainly seems to be... I mean, Drew's the only one that says what happened. Um, And that, that character the one that's most willing to go to the cops is seems to be the only one that's ready to tell the whole story. Uh, doesn't seem like Lewis. Yeah, Cause he uses the happened. phrase sexual assault. Yeah. yeah. And he's the only one that does. So I, again, I, this just kind of circles back to, uh, this film's place in the zeitgeist. And it's just, uh, Arthur's right. Like Arthur went his whole life, never seen this movie thinking it was a, an action comedy because of the, the discourse around. It. And obviously when things get sufficiently big, they start getting parodied. Uh, and sometimes things bounce back from that, right? Like, I mean, The Matrix was not cool for a long time because it had two pretty uh, hard-to-defend sequels. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, everything parodied The Matrix. I think there's a list, and, like, by O2, even before the sequels had come out, like, everything was parodying The Matrix. And it's bounced back, and, like, now we're still talking about it. But, you know, growing up, uh, when I was first getting into film, like, even in the you know, right around the time Deliverance would have been having its 30th anniversary... I don't remember a lot of people talking about it. I mean, the 40th anniversary just came and went. Don't remember people talking about it. Yeah, it didn't come up, yeah. So it's it's interesting to, to, that something has become kind of forgotten enough that the actual context is just sort of in the ether. And I do think part of that is is that the sort of amorphous genre that it belongs to mm. because it doesn't feel quite like an environmental film or an environmentalist, you know, it's got some of those components to it. You know, we're talking about the power company coming in and flooding out these towns and it's not really, um, sort of like a sociological study of, you know, um, mountain people or, nor is it just fully a horror movie, nor is it like, I don't know, sort of out in the jungle wages of the fear kind of a thriller kind of film. And so it, it, it sort of jumps around between those things. And I don't think it does so, you know, uh, clumsily or anything like that, but it does, it doesn't really play genre. And, uh, I think that makes it harder to classify and therefore it doesn't, it doesn't get listed as much and then doesn't get brought into conversations because we do tend to orient our films around genres. And, you know, Borman not being sort of a great auteur doesn't make it uh, way into those kind of discussions as well, right? And Reynolds' best movie is Smokey and the Bandit, and that's what he'll be known for. Boom. Yeah, mm-hmm. John Voight gets remembered for Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. There you go. Nobody remembers it. Uh, everybody remembers it, but nobody remembers what happens in it, yeah. right? Even if the, you know what happens in it, that's a different thing from... Because there's plenty of movies I've never seen that I know every beat of, just by yeah. virtue of being alive. Yeah. But, and, and you know, reading about film. Uh, but, again, this is one that I kind of knew most of the beats of, and... Still, I, I, the moments where it works, it's absolutely captivating. It really is. Uh, it's just, it's a slog, and I can see why people have forgotten about it. But, you know, if you haven't seen a movie, I don't know, maybe don't make references to it. Because mm-hmm. uh, you might not have the full context for the joke you're making. Yeah. Uh, but this is a that's a real stomach churner of a scene, man. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's never funny. Yeah, it's I just mean, not. I mean, I remember in high school, I mean, you got a pretty mouth was a joke. Yeah, all the time. Same. There's a joke, uh, there's a uh, dodgeball. Uh, don't rewatch it. Uh, try to rewatch that recently. There's a, you got a pretty mouth joke early in the movie. Early. Mm. Like it's, 
And it is a very like the the whole implication of the scene is that this guy with the big uh, monster truck wants to wants to fuck Alan Tudyk uh, as Steve the pirate. Good performance. Uh, neither here nor there. Just like that, like that Alan Tudyk. Yeah, it's it became and stayed, and I think to this day remains a punchline. I don't. It's a bummer. Yeah, it's not cool. No, it's really it's not. Super gross. There's well, look. Uh, we, we've talked a lot about the merits of sexual assault on film on this show, and uh, yeah, I, the one time, uh, one of the handful of times that there's a, actually had a chance for us to talk about male on male rape uh, in cinema, uh, in American cinema, we should really probably take it a little bit more seriously. Like, there's not that many examples of it, and mm-hmm. most of them are, I'm like, what? Uh, most of them are prison movies. I'm mostly thinking of uh, Shawshank. Shawshank and American History X. Yeah, those are the first two that come to mind. Like, there's just not that many movies where, it, if it's a feature, it's not it's somebody's backstory. It's not something you know about, right? And uh, you know, look, I'm not saying we should all go out and try to make our movie about sexual assault, but when we do get movies about it, we should try to take it seriously and uh, see if the film's taking it seriously. Because I think, uh, probably by virtue of being a film about men by men this film actually like treats rape very seriously and is a, a very like i think well shot scene it's not overly uh, sh- uh exploitative i mean there's plenty of rape revenge movies that are uh you know not as pleasant as this film in terms of their uh or not pleasant uh as nuanced i guess that's a much better way to put it well and i do think the way in which the film addresses this idea that this is an unspoken thing i mean we we sort of we yeah. were, were we're hitting around it earlier that you you can't talk about it and uh that drew is the one who dares to speak it he again is the one that gets killed for it uh or can't handle the knot of speaking of it and uh, hiding the body of the uh, perpetrator no, neither. the film kills him yeah. i mean whoever's yeah whatever uh, we want to assign to the character. The movie kills him. The movie does kill this guy. And again, it's because we, we can't talk about that. It's just, it, it's a thing that we'll just take to our graves and we're never going to address that. It, you know, Ned this, Beatty says, I don't think we're going to be hanging out. Like he straight up says, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. The I, one person who knows what he's been through, who can probably help him uh, like unpack it and process. Nope. No, nope, I don't want to talk to you, bud. We're going to not see each other for a while. Yeah. That's his, that's the fate of Ned Beatty's character is not talking about it. And I, I do think the film knows that that's bad. It I, seems to. I, the, the film is aware of this is the tendency and this is not healthy. And I, for that, I think it's, you know, good. Well, because the, the film ends, as Arthur alluded to earlier, with, you know, John Voight's nightmare that the body's going to float up and they're going to get caught. And all he can think about when he's lying in bed is it's a great closing credits, too, by the way. We haven't talked yeah. about that. I'm a big fan of just like letting the credits play over him not being able to sleep. That's a, that's a good choice. But yeah, I mean, the film takes it seriously, and I think the very least we can do uh, as a film going public is, you know, take that aspect of this film seriously if we do bother to remember that this film exists. Yeah. Other thoughts or big uh, areas of coverage? Okay, well, let's go ahead and render a verdict regarding Deliverance, Shelf or Trash. We've had a really, really great conversation about a movie that we initially didn't like so much, so I'll be curious to hear what you say, my dear co-host. I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say? Shelf or Trash regarding Deliverance? Pondering. I think purely from the cultural artifact element, I'm going to shelf it. I mean... I don't know that I'd watch it, but if I was ever in a position to teach, I'd be very interested in that discourse and talking about it from a film production standpoint, uh, from a masculinity and cinema standpoint. I mean, I think there's a lot of good uh, pedagogical use for this film. And so from that aspect, I would I would say shelf. 
All righty, all right. What do you say, Dalton? I'm going to go ahead and back Arthur up on this one. I mean, maybe it's just because we're teaching this theoretical course together, but I again, I also <laughs> well, Arthur don't, already did. You didn't have I to. Also, don't like this movie very much. I will probably never watch Deliverance ever again because it's okay. It really is just okay, and it's again shocking to me what a huge hit it was. It's wild. You get you go back and look at Warner Brothers uh, catalog, man. They have some weird movies that made a lot of money. It's bonkers. But, yeah, I, I I don't like it very much. But as Arthur said, I think it's really good from a teaching standpoint, not just about film, but about our discourse around film. Again, like our, we've talked so much about masculinity this episode and not just about the confines of the film, I, the, the context of the 1970s and what masculinity looked like in America at that point and how it lays the groundwork for conversations we're still having today. Yeah, I think it's a super, super interesting movie in that regard, uh, especially when we talk about the history of film production in Georgia, which, again, the biggest film ever made was produced in Georgia. I mean, that's that's something that is worth talking about and starts at Deliverance for all intents and purposes. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a really valuable movie for all the reasons we've talked about. Yeah, I, I'm really wrestling with it right now because I'm like, would I teach it? Would I use it? I mean, for all the things that we talk about, it is an oddball. It is a strange thing, but would I actually? I don't. I don't know that I would. And more importantly, I don't know that I would foist it on students. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It is a lot to deal with. I, and, I guess I, I don't know, especially uh, because of its being difficult. But I don't know the ways in which it's difficult or easier to process. I think than other yeah. things that deal with similar subject matter. Uh, so I'm going to softly trash, but I'm definitely more than willing to reconsider my trashing of it at this point. But I, I, I would have to chew on a little bit longer. I think. I like that we all went in without our minds made up. Well, tune in next week when we talk about Deliverance again and try <laughs> to sway Dustin. No, not going to do that. I am done, I re- yeah, done, it, done. It's okay. Uh, well, uh, we reached that point in the show where I'm going to vamp for a second while uh, Dustin... We had a really good stretch where he forgot to vamp yeah. uh, for several weeks. I'm not, I'm not and then vamp. he remembered. And uh, I think he tattooed in a very memento-esque way. Don't forget to vamp. He no, sees I'm it every morning when he wakes up. Stanley Jenkins. We're at the end of the show. Uh, thanks for tuning in. It's been a blast. Uh, thanks to our patrons who helped keep us on the air, like Brigham, who uh, helped uh, bring you last week's uh, episode about Tommy Boy. Enjoy that. Last week's, week before last's episode. We record these out in advance. Time's weird. We can be sure. Uh, so thanks to our patrons. Uh, thanks to Aaron Rodgers, who did our theme music. He's great. He's not the sports player. He's just a guy we know. He's, he's real good and makes music. Uh, so thanks, Aaron. Uh, we're on Twitter, at good underscore trash. Don't get on Twitter if you're not already. It's not worth it. We don't check the Facebook. Uh, if you want to send us a long-form feedback, that's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. We'd love to know what you think. And, you know, you've listened to a podcast before. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, if you want to be one of those patrons, it's patreon.com forward slash GTM. Now I'm done, Arthur. I wasn't really vamping. It was mostly just uh, filling time. Taking to... care of business. Yeah. I, I really am not coming back if we do Deliverance again. Well, we won't do Deliverance. Okay. Oh, well, what are we doing? How do you feel about Neil Gaiman, though? I'm in. Yeah, yeah. That's, well, all, that's yeah. all I had to say. You had him in Neil. <laughs> well, he didn't we're gonna... care which Neil it was. Yeah. Uh, next week, we're going to dive into a genre we really don't touch ever in the fantasy genre. Yay. And we're going to talk uh, Stardust. Whoa, I've never seen this movie. Very, very fun. Matthew Vaughn. I remember uh, this came out. Stacked yeah. cast. So I think... Uh, We'll see what happens. I'm a big fan of the graphic uh, or illustrated novella as well. Are you? So, yeah. Well, I, I'd that like to see some adaptation insight that you bring to that. I will do what I can. Cool. So, well, there wow. you go. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.